You're listening to The Honest Report. A weekly podcast analyzing media coverage of the Arab-Israeli conflict, anti-Semitism, and radical Islamic terrorism. Here's your host, Rob Walker. This is Thursday, January 13th. I'm Robert Walker, and welcome to the Honest Report podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Jonathan Chanzer. He's a senior vice president for research at FDD, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he oversees the work of the organization's experts and scholars. He previously worked as a terrorism finance analyst at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, um, and he's also written, written a recent book, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be with you. So tell us about your book. What uh, What's really the central thesis? Well, the central thesis is that the media got it very, very wrong. Um, of course, that's nothing new to those who've watched uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict play out. Uh, over the last several decades. But rather than discussing bias or fake news, I would say that the media in the West, it seemed as if they had covered an entirely different conflict than the one that I saw on Israeli television and, and Arab television, for that matter. The major events were either reported poorly or were just not covered at all here in the U.S. And so I felt the need to write a book that that kind of described what I saw and I, indeed what I think the region saw um, to try to set the record straight. Maybe one other thing that I'll just note is that the role of Iran, the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism and Hamas's foremost state sponsor, was barely noted here as well. And I thought that was highly problematic, given that uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and, in fact, the Arab-Israeli conflict appears to be shrinking to some extent. Uh, It is the Iranians that try to keep that flame on high. And uh, the analysis of that role was just non-existent. So tell us about then how, I mean, obviously most people who are reading the news, you know, we can see how the media is describing this sort of David versus Goliath, um, uh, you know, conflict between Israel and Hamas. But Jonathan, at the same time, that's not new, is it? I mean, we've been seeing that for, I don't know, since the Six Day War. So how has this conflict maybe been different from, say, previous Gaza wars or or Israel versus uh, Hezbollah? I mean, have you noticed a distinction and nuance in that respect? Well, I would say, first of all, that in the aftermath of the Abraham Accords, the coverage of this particular war was far less vitriolic in the Arab world um, than it ever had been. And I would say that it may have even been more muted than what we saw on some of the cable news channels here in the West. And I think that that alone should just be kind of a warning uh, for anyone that watches the media and, and tries to be critical of it. Um, but but there were specific moments during the war that I noted during the book that I think really um, demonstrated how poorly things were covered. And again, I, I don't think that, that bias is the right way to frame this. And that, yes, I think, you know, the David and Goliath thing may still be apt, but I think that there were other indications that there are deeper problems within uh, w- within journalism in the West. So just for example, this notion that a real estate dispute 
in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem, that this was the cause of the conflict. And we saw this on TV. We saw it in the, in, in the news. Certainly analysts on Twitter were going on about Sheikh Jarrah. But last time I checked, real estate conflicts don't cause wars. Um, it's guns and rockets and bullets that cause wars. And in this case, Hamas was the party that actually began the firing, uh, shooting rockets deep into Israel, actually to the outskirts of Jerusalem. Um, yet somehow this real estate dispute continued to figure prominently in the analysis and the reporting. But what was ignored remarkably to me was that there was an election that was slated to take place in the Palestinian political arena. It was supposed to take place in April, one month before the war erupted. Um, it was initially endorsed by the Biden administration. I think after some time, it became clear to the Biden team that this would be a mistake, that allowing Hamas, a terrorist group that is designated in the United States and recognized as a terrorist group around the world, that if it were to take part in those elections and win seats, then it would trigger a cut in funding and recognition here in the U.S., and that would cause that would cause a full-blown crisis. And so ultimately, those elections were canceled. In my view, that was likely the reason why Hamas elected to go to war, that they had been cast out from the political system. They were furious. They were looking for a way to make themselves relevant. And for an organization like Hamas, which has been carrying out violence against Israel since 1988, uh, a war against Israel was the easiest way to put it back front and center in the minds of the Palestinians, if not the entire Arab world. And so these are just a couple of, ins, uh, uh, of incidents that, that I address in the book. There were many, many more that where the media just got it wrong poor reporting, erroneous reporting, the decisions to focus on other things. Um, I was just truly um, appalled, not shocked, but appalled. Um, and I think it really stemmed from the fact that I was able to watch the war much more closely this time around, thanks to smartphone and smart TV technology, better, more advanced than it was during the last round in 2014. So I was really able to watch it almost around the clock. And so it's an interesting point you made. We just actually had as a previous guest, um, Flor Hassan Nahum, the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. And she was uh, making a very similar point, which is uh, Hamas was, uh, you know, they decided to launch this out of a sense of a frustration almost, uh, not only with how frustrated Hamas was, but with how well Israel is doing on the tech front with the Abraham Accords, et cetera. Um, they needed to, to do something to show their relevance. I think that's probably right. And I, certainly the decision to enter into um, that electoral process that I just described, that was undoubtedly born of the Abraham Accords and the frustration that both uh, Palestinian factions, the Fatah faction, which controls the, the West Bank, and the Hamas faction, which controls the Gaza Strip, they realized that they were losing the narrative in the Arab world, that the Arab states, certainly the UAE, Bahrain, um, and Morocco and Sudan had elected to deprioritize the Palestinian cause uh, and to enter into these normalization agreements. And so I think the Palestinians began to realize that their own divisions and their squabbling that has been going on since the civil war that took place in Gaza in 2007, that they needed to sort of adjust, that they needed to re reset or recast the narrative. So I believe that um, that was the reason why they decided to hold those elections in the first place. 
and why they were willing to move forward, even with all of the discord within, um, because they needed to try to win back the hearts and minds of the Arab world. They certainly failed to do that. I don't think they did it uh, by way of war. I do think, unfortunately, that Hamas does look stronger right now. Um, it looks like the more active party between the two rival Palestinian factions. And it's for that reason that we see the United States and even Israel go out of their way right now to try to breathe some new life and legitimacy into the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. I have to say, though, that I think it's a mistake, not because Hamas um, doesn't need to be diminished. It does. Uh, but I do believe that the Fatah faction, as it is structured now, the Palestinian Authority, as it is structured now, deeply corrupt, deeply inadequate. And um, I think there really needs to be some serious discussions about true reform, not putting a Band-Aid on the problem or, as we would say, putting lipstick on a pig. So uh, so where does that sort of leave Iran then? Because, you know, I wonder if we have almost a, no, I wouldn't say too much of a good thing, but, you know, the Palestinians and Hamas, you know, they used to have a lot of uh, almost, um, you know, uh, support that never ended uh, from many, you know, uh, many corners of the Arab world. And because that's drying up, is that pushing them more into the arms of Iran and, and, and emboldening them? I mean, how do we get out of that um, that system? Well, yeah, I think, look, number one, uh, there is no doubt that Hamas seeks additional support from Iran. But I would say that it's really not a reflection of um, anything other than continuous support that Iran has been providing Hamas since the late 1980s. I mean, uh, in my book, I go back and I look at the history in multiple chapters, actually, of the Iranian largesse that flowed to Hamas before um, the Oslo uh, process began, after it collapsed, uh, you know, before the Second Intifada, after the Second Intifada, and certainly um, since the Arab Spring, Iran has been a an almost constant. There have been a few moments where ties have been less than stable, but most of the time it's been a very solid patron-client relationship. Um, and so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, um, you know, Hamas is any closer to Iran than it has been in the past. It has been a consistent problem. The other, the other thing that I'll just note is that Iran is not the only challenge here, that you see other countries, three countries in particular, that, that continue to provide support to Hamas as well. Uh, and they are Turkey, Qatar, and Malaysia. Now, the thing that's amazing about the four patrons that we've just discussed is that America- Bastions is, of human rights. Well, bastions of human rights without question, right? But, but then there's also the issue of America has an alliance with uh, with Turkey. Uh, Turkey's a member of NATO. Uh, America has an alliance with um, with Qatar. We have our largest air base in the Middle East based in Qatar. Malaysia, we don't treat as an enemy country. We, we treat as a nominal ally. And of course, Iran, we're trying to throw money at that country right now to induce it to getting back into that deeply flawed 2015 nuclear agreement. And so really, if you want to think about how do you start to walk this back, Maybe it actually starts with the United States holding all four of these patrons to account. And we're just simply not doing it. It's, it. It seems as if the United States is willing to abide by this, 
Um, and it doesn't, it, it's not clear to me exactly why. I mean, with the Iran case, I suppose I understand there's a trade-off, or at least that's what's happening in the minds of the Biden administration. I think it's extremely dangerous to make that trade-off with a state sponsor of terrorism. But then with these other countries, what is the risk of pushing them to do more to cut off the flow of funds or other support to Hamas? I just don't see where the risk is. The U.S. has significant leverage. So where do you see this uh, going vis-a-vis uh, Hamas in the future? I mean, you've uh, you've written uh, certainly some of the reviews of your book uh, that uh, that Hamas has sort of a, a dual uh, strategy or a dual uh, sort of vision in the future for how to lure Israel into conflict. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, first of all, I think we should just note that there have been four conflicts uh, in Gaza since 2009. Um, there will be a fifth at this rate. Um, I don't see uh, a fifth being averted. In fact, you know we're we're, we're seeing signs of tension already um, in early 2022. So I, I think it's important to note that Hamas is always preparing for conflict. It's always amassing new weapons. Uh, and by the way, some of those weapons now include uh, aerial drones, underwater drones, and and more precise or or more explosive rockets. Um, and these are things just to watch. But one of the things that I did note in the book is that, and we've seen evidence of this, that Hamas uh, appears to have uh, created a, a military presence in Lebanon with the goal that in a future round of fighting, that rockets may fly out of Lebanon, not at the hands of Hezbollah, but at the, uh, at the hands of Hamas operatives that are operating extraterritorially, if you will. And the goal is to draw Israel into a two-front conflict. And that is, I think, highly significant because what it could do is pull Hezbollah in, it could pull Syria in, it even could pull Iran into a conflict. And these regional conflicts are exactly what Israel seeks to avoid. You can obviously recall the 1973 war when Israel had to fight on two fronts that was almost disastrous for the country. And so there are real questions now about what will happen if Israel is drawn in to a similar two or even three front conflict. Well, uh, fascinating discussion, Jonathan. Not the cheeriest one we've ever had, but uh, certainly a fascinating one. And um, and looking forward to getting my hands on your book, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. Thank you again, Jonathan. Fascinating discussion. We'll hopefully yeah, have so, you again on in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And uh, sorry, I couldn't be a little more cheery. It just, uh, I guess that's the topic. <laughs> quite all right. Quite all right. Okay. All right. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. And again, that's Dr. Jonathan Shanzer. And that's today's edition of the Honest Report podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our alerts, subscribe to our podcast, leave a review. And if you like what you heard, please consider a donation to support our continued efforts. You can do so at honestreporting.ca slash donate. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.